0: Hey there, folks, we're kicking off today's episode with a cup of tea from the Nepal Tea Collective. Nepal Tea is a social enterprise based in New York that distributes the freshest organically grown teas to different parts of the world directly from smallholder farmers in the beautiful country of, you guessed it, Nepal. You can join us for a cup of tea and be part of the global impact they're creating by visiting NepalTeaCollective.com. That's (laughs) Collective.com. Yikes, my cup of tea is already getting cold. So why don't you join me and hop
1: into today's episode. Hailing from the Gold Coast and currently breaking barriers in Britain, this week's guest, Akosua Bame, is an accomplished management consultant with a very specific skill set reviving dying corporations through mindset transformation after 20 years of success in her craft akosua has pioneered a unique and trademarked approach to catalyzing change that starts with the mind of an individual in our conversation we use her mindset revolution concept and herd approach to unpack the fundamental psychology of why people families organizations and nations at large either succeed or fail. We embark on a reflective journey of why we act the way we do and how nations like Rwanda have used the power of collective behavioural change to initiate and sustain long-term growth. At the end of the day, Akosua argues, it is not our hopes and aspirations that will make our lives and communities successful, but an intentionally crafted system of psychological and cultural incentives and activities. In this fascinating episode, we are challenged to see the bigger picture by first looking within. Join us for another incredible deep dive into the life journey and craft of an industry leader, unlike any other.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Wherever you are, whoever you are, welcome to the Boardroom Banter Podcast. You're joining me, Sean Karanja, your host today for another guest episode. It's Tuesday, so that means that we are in conversation with a mover, a shaker, a doer, someone who's built a really fascinating either business or career. We're going to dig a bit into that, but one of my fascinations with the guest that we have today is the industry that she's in. Our guest today is the person that Fortune 500 companies, governments, etc., call when they're having a really difficult time adapting to change, either culturally, um, structurally. She's a management consultant who has basically spent the past 20 years understanding how to turn companies around when they're in dying stages, when they're unable to basically reach their full potential. She does that not just for businesses, but for individuals. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our guest today, none other than Akosua Bame. Akosua, welcome to the boardroom.
2: Thank you so much, Sean, for having me here. I'm excited, actually. So looking forward to the next hour or so of dialogue. Yeah.
0: To give a bit of a brief overview of Hua Kosoa is what she's all about. She's an alumna of London's prestigious Imperial College Business School, and a member of the Middle Temple Inn Court, undergoing barrister in law training whilst simultaneously pursuing her PhD studies in entrepreneurship. But quite importantly, we must note and highlight that she's an accomplished management consultant with over 20 years of experience. I mean, almost as long as I've been alive. And she's been specializing in large-scale organizational transformation, service redesign, strategic commissioning, and you know works with private and public sector players who are really looking to rescue what she calls failing programs. Right? So... You've got this organization that fundamentally should be working a certain way and are unable to do that for one reason or another. Akoswa comes in and basically saves the day. But we won't get too, too, too deep into um, what you do. I will not let the cat out of the bag. Akoswa, I'm going to let you walk us through who who are you and what do you do? If you were to explain it, let's say, to a 10-year-old,
2: Okay, so how I describe my life's work to a 10 year old or an organization or a up is essentially I am about helping people as individuals, uh, groups, or organizations to really discover their purpose, their raison d'etre, why they are here, uh, why they exist, to discover their talents, and then to determine how best they can use that to serve humanity. Because that's all I believe we're all here for. We are on a journey of service, and we need to discover what we offer at any particular point or stage in that journey. And that's what I help individuals as well as organizations to do. And that's really it in a nutshell.
0: Okay, so I've got a question that would probably put couple of things into context for people so anyone who is familiar with your accent right would quickly place that you're guinean so i just want to quickly ask where where are you calling us in from right we we can see you've got an incredible background working in the uk um africa as well how have you ended up where you are right now
2: how i ended up here in the uk well (laughs) What is it? Um, I started my journey, obviously, in Ghana. I lived in Ghana until I was about um, 22. I relocated to the United Kingdom um, after, my first, after I'd finished my first degree. Now, let me just take a step back. What led me here? Um, growing up, I had always known somehow that I would live abroad. I think it's probably the literature I read, the books I read, the curiosity of how the other side lived and all that. But when I finished my first degree in business administration and hadn't majored in insurance or prior to that, I definitely knew I wanted to work in London, being the city of the center of the financial center, quote unquote of the world, for at least a couple of years to learn from the best. And so that's how I arrived here at the UK, having completed um, a business administration degree at the University of Ghana School of Administration, then it's now called University of Ghana Business School. Um, Graduated with a first class and relocated here into the UK the August of 1992, and started my career with the leading um, company called Commercial Union Insurance at that time. Commercial Union Assurance, sorry, at that time, which is merged with a number of companies. It merged with General Accident, then Norwich Union. And finally, if you want to find the traces of commercial union, it exists within a company called Aviva. So that's how, that's how it began. I just wanted to come here to the UK, experience the financial services sector for a couple of years. And then be on my merry way back to Ghana to go and live my life. But obviously, that did not transpire to me since I've been here for the past three decades. (laughs) Um, Obviously, marriage came and children came and the trajectory obviously changed. But I believe this is part of this was where I was meant to be. Um, And the future is where it will be. So that's that's in a nutshell
0: how I got to be here. That's very interesting, Akosua. Fun fact, actually, here on the podcast, we do have a really, really big diaspora community. So both listeners, but also the guests that we have on and really a coincidence. And, you know, as as fate would have it, we were introduced to you by who we featured on episode 63 on our podcast you know we're talking all about rethinking pan-africanism and he too is a Ghanaian who's based in the uk now individuals like yourselves are really setting the bar high for us because yes we do understand that we can achieve and build here on the continent but you guys are really set the bar high because you're saying hey We can be successful not only on the continent, but also across the ocean. Let's go to Europe. Let's build there. Uh, Let's go to the Americas. Let's be successful there. Let's go to Asia. Uh, Let's be phenomenal. So you guys are really, really setting the precedent quite high for us. and, And kudos to that because it takes a lot of courage to hop over the pond and remain rooted in your african identity while still contending with you know being an outsider in these kinds of spaces i know it can't be easy at all i know it i know it's not i'd love for us to explore some of the challenges that you faced when you moved out there you're faced with this new precedent new culture and you've had to maintain as we can see by the results of your successful career you've had to maintain a certain level of excellence in everything that you've done, with any challenges that you faced in going into these fresh new cultures and retaining your African identity um, while still stepping up to the challenge, and of course, are you coming back?
2: Oh, absolutely! I can answer that <laughs> without without oh, even yeah. taking a, a breath, a deep breath in. Um, yes. So in terms of how I guess what you're trying to say is how did I assimilate the culture here. I guess this is where mindset really helped me, because I was raised. Um, I was raised to feel equal and equitable. I was raised by my father. My father was a professor in sociology and African studies. And I guess that's where he instilled my identity as an African in me. My name is ethnic and African. Um, and Essentially, there was never an enigma about um, the Western world or the global world. There was never that mystery or that um, superiority conferred. No, and I also grew up on, as as you said, you met Yao in South who is my 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 friend from since we were three years old. We've been through school, primary school, secondary school together. Yes, and um, so we've been friends for over 50 years, and he, he, our paths diverged when he went to the University of Science and Technology, and I went to the University of Ghana. So I stayed o- on Legon campus, but we grew up on Lagon campus together, and that was a very cosmopolitan environment, and it was an environment of merit, as in it was a meritocratic environment. So long as you were able to actually deliver what you were supposed to deliver, so long as you argued from a, an academic point that was sound, so long as you were good in what you were doing, you th- there was nothing there that made any particular class or type of people or ethnicity or because we have we had white people there, we had um, obviously and foreigners like other African countries members there as well, so. We had Nigerians, we had Kenyans, we had all of that. And it was just a cosmopolitan environment, but very much an equitable one. So I left Ghana with bags of self-esteem. I left Ghana not having encountered racism at all. Uh, my first encounter with racism, and I wouldn't go, I won't, I don't want to dwell on that because it tends to be. To diverge from the essence, but my first encounter with was in the United Kingdom. Yeah, that was when I began to think, oh, is there something different about me? But I, as I said, I had already got the mindset that said, so long as I'm able to deliver to the standard expected of me, I, I, I don't, I don't take any prisoners. I really couldn't care less, or it didn't sort of devalue me. However, I would say this though, because it's a shock to the system coming from that environment. So at some point in my career, maybe, because first you come in with youthful, naive exuberance, and and therefore some things just wash away. But a couple of years into my career, I started asking myself, no, I started finding that I was trying to be two different people. I would go to work and try to conform so much that you would struggle to identify the same Akusha that you're seeing at work, at home. And that tension was just too much. And I have to say this, don't get me wrong. It's not just um, a race thing that makes you put on that character or persona. I think it's a a cultural thing within the system anyway. And so I'm sure a lot of my white counterparts are exactly caught up in that same scenario, being two personalities. Absolutely. We we budget under the, the, the term being professional, but actually no, it's killing people's soul because you're trying to be somebody you are not constantly. And you spend most of your waking moments at work so at some point, that was one of the triggers that made me say, I can't live in the corporate world in terms of being an employee. I'd always been entrepreneurial in my mindset anyway. I have to own my own destiny. I have to work for myself. That way, when you get me in as a consultant to do your work, you got me in because you know that I have a specialism that you want to buy. If you Subsequently, don't wish to buy it. That's OK. But I don't want to be in the position where you're working in a corporate environment and you're having to be somebody that you're not, because you're thinking of performance reviews, you're thinking of promotion, you're thinking of X, Y, and Z. I, I just couldn't live my authenticity in that environment. Some people do. I couldn't. So I made the choice. Um, so in answer to your question, mine was to make a conscious choice to work for myself. and That's therefore, really
3: awesome.
2: To go where I want to go, to present my goods and services in the way I choose to present them, um, and to therefore work with the clients that buy me as they see me rather right. than anything else.
0: So at the core of, what you're saying, Akuswa, I'm picking up on two things. The first is the importance that operating in or being a part of a meritocracy plays in the spaces that you choose to be in and the value that you attribute and the fairness and, you know, um, equity that you deem is present in that space, right? And... To anyone who is not sure what a meritocracy is, it's basically a system where it's a system where advancement or promotion or opportunities are allocated or based on individual ability or achievement, right? So it's not about your social class or wealth or whatever. It's strictly down to how talented are you and Therefore, that being the main criteria for whether you deserve certain opportunities or not, which I think is entirely fair. The second thing that I'm picking up on is your relationship with these meritocracies or how basically you were able to unpack or understand the value that you had to provide to these societies. Because, I mean, you've studied at some of the greatest institutions we... (laughs) We, we have come to know and you excelling in those spaces let alone getting in I mean you got in on merit that that's amazing but staying there also requires you to have a certain belief system about yourself um, and when I look at the work that you do at mindset revolution which you found which you founded I um, and even now your work as a management consultant, when we think of what do you do and what does a management consultant do um, within the context of creating transformative change and cultural change, you go into these places and you basically are identifying negative prevailing mindsets or ways of thinking about how we work together, how we build, what we build, how we serve our clients, um, how we engage with the, ever-changing marketplace, you go in there, you identify these things and you walk management and employees through these different frameworks that allow them to have a renewed mindset and view about these things, which eventually becomes culture, which eventually becomes, you know, certain actions and systems, and which eventually turns this company around. You know so much about this that you literally wrote a book mindset revolution and this whole idea has become so critical to the work that you do but also I'd argue the success that you've had in this right there's a certain framework there's a certain way that you go um, about instilling these changes in people Um, walk us through your obsession you know for a lack of a better word with mindset what's what's that all about and what do we need to know about that
2: Well, your mindset, you are your mindset. That's the short answer to it. And therefore, if mindset is unimportant, then you are unimportant. That's the conclusion you've drawn. And here I'll explain what mindset is. Mindset is really your core beliefs and values. Now, it sits within our mind frame. And here I will draw on the iceberg theory to explain. We we think at three different levels, the unconscious level, the subconscious level, and the conscious level. The conscious level is really the tip of the iceberg. That's the little bit that is visible to us, but actually most of that conscious level is being driven by what sits within the subconscious, which is a bit closer to the conscious level, But even more deeply, what sits within the unconscious, which is our belief system, that core belief system, that core value system is what drives how you think at a conscious level. And how you think at a conscious level is what's going to drive how you act and behave. So, when we look at somebody's behavior or action and we judge them based on the conscious level, we, we, we've missed a trick. You know, that's like me telling the doctor that I have a headache and he just gives me painkillers. Whereas that headache could actually be driven by a number of things it could be stress related, it could be that I'm hypertensive, it could be that it's just um, I'm tired, it could be I have a tumor, God forbid. You know, it could be anything. So looking at that- The headache
0: is just, it's a symptom, right? It's a
2: symptom. It's not the diagnosis. So if you look at the headache and then decide, oh, that's, that's it, you've missed it. So why I say your mindset is who you are is that's the essence that drives you. The core belief system that you have at an unconscious and subconscious level it's what's driving you to think and behave in certain ways at a conscious level. So if you just focus on what you're, is consciously available to you, you're not dealing with anything that is below that surface, which is actually the driver. And therefore, um, if, as I said, mindset is unimportant, then essentially you are unimportant. And that's why my obsession is with mindset. It underpins how we act, how we think, how we behave. So if good things are happening to you, you're thinking in the right ways. At your core, you're holding certain beliefs that are driving you to do that and vice versa. So that's how you know whether you're thinking correctly, whether your core belief system is aligning with what you want to see in your life, is when you look at the results in your life and they are not the results you're looking for, if an organization looks at its results and those are not the results they're looking for, they need to go back and ask, what is the organizational mindset, core belief system that is driving our staff to think and act in ways that are leading to the results that we see. And a lot of organizations do not invest enough time in that aspect of their change journey. They will will budget as culture change and effectively just write a few statements here and there. We are an organization of empowered people. We are this, we are that. And just (laughs) put some symbols out there that says that, yes, this is what we do. All about. This is our value system. We care for people. Everybody's voice matters, blah, blah, blah. But in actual fact, they don't invest in the organizational mindset. Now, let me just draw attention to this. Your core belief system, your value system, is all developed through lived experiences. Yes. So at the very start, all you have to understand as a human being is that from the day you were born till you die, you're constantly being programmed. Now you are either being programmed by your parents, programmed by your family, programmed by the world, programmed by the news but you're constantly being programmed. And these programs get reinforced through lived experiences. Now the lived experience doesn't have to be yours. It can be an observed lived experience. And that is where organizations don't understand that how you treat X has a ripple effect on everybody else that is observing it, good or bad. So something maybe we say, oh, we are an empowered organization. You are allowed to fail and blah, blah, blah. Then somebody fails and they are (laughs) So basically the organization is literally canceled out every preaching and mantra it's been given through the treatment of this one individual. But most organizations think, oh, it's just that one individual. No, it's the thousands of employees observing that experience and telling themselves, I'm not going to have that experience. So guess what? I'm not going to be empowered. I'm not going to be proactive. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm just going to do the bare minimum to post because here in this organization, as much as they say, oh, you are empowered, in truth, if you push the button, not... you get sacked. And that's right. how it works. And at an individual level, same scenario. You may observe certain behaviors between mom and dad, and you, you take those with you into your marriage and so on and so forth. Because, I mean, a lot of the times parents will tell you certain things, but they will behave in different ways. In actual fact, children learn more through observation than what you tell them. And your lived experience as a parent becomes their lived experience, which codifies a belief system in them about certain aspects of life. You know, so um, and, and, and so when I go into organizations, ask about the frameworks or whatever, I have my own framework. Um, that I've developed over the years. Uh, it's the Head H E A R D approach, and it's a proprietary framework. Interesting. Um, and Tell us can... about it. Okay, so really, the Head approach that is my framework that I've developed. H stands for Hypersize. So we need to, as we go, when I go into any organization, and if you, I meet you as an individual on a mindset coaching basis. We need to start off with a hypothesis. Where do we, what's our end goal? And to reach there, what belief systems do we need to have? What do I truly need to believe? What does this organization need to believe about itself in order to achieve that goal, vision, whatever it is? Um, The E stands for educate. So how do we get staff to internalize these beliefs? How do I get you as an individual to internalize these beliefs? What tools, what techniques do we use? Um, the A stands for act. So how do we then operationalize, create an operational environment that supports this actual belief system that we are educating staff to internalize? So I just like the example I gave you, you certainly don't operationalize, create an operational environment which sucks people that are proactive when you're saying that the belief system that you want to program into the organization is for people to be proactive. That's not a conducive operational environment, you know? So you have to create an environment where failure is allowed but also where people are allowed to ask questions. Mistakes are opportunities for learning rather than mistakes as, as an opportunity for bashing you or blaming you, etc. Um the R stands for reinforce. So we've created the operational environment, but you need to back it up with other things that will ensure that people behave and think in the ways you want. So you have a reward structure and you have a sanction structure. We reward the behaviors that we want people to exhibit. We sanction against those behaviors that we don't. And the final thing is diffuse. So basically, I mean, I'm only one person and I have a number of associates that work with me. In terms of interacting with an organization, I may not be able to interact with massive, more of the organization, probably maybe 5% at most, depending on the size of the organization. Um, for larger organizations, even smaller percentages. But there needs to be a way in which everything that we've talked about, hypothesizing, educating, creating the operational environment through actions, reinforcing through reward structures. There has to be a way that we diffuse into the organization the mindsets we want people to have. So you need to look at things like your champions, your change champions or change agents. You need to look at things like action learning sets, you know, bring people together from different parts of the organizations, because a number of organizations grow so big, then each team and each department becomes so siloed, they don't even interact as an organization anymore, except through emails, etc. So bring in action learning sets, bring colleagues from different parts of the organization together to solve what would be a common problem, but that would require the different belief systems that you're trying to infuse. Those are the sorts of things, shared learning sessions, just so that the change is cascaded naturally through the organization. And a lot of organizations just rely on one, you know, communications, and they'll probably, I mean, send e-newsletters, which nobody reads anyway. So, and they'll keep doing it, saying, well, so long as we've ticked the box off, we told them through the newsletter, every now and again, the CEO will come and say something, that's done well, that's not going to transform behaviors. And so that's my, that's my framework that I use um, um, in actually getting the organizations on the mindset transformation journey. And that for me is critical wow. to any successful transformation. Program. I can do all the hard elements of the transformation. Let's change processes. Let's change systems. Let's restructure mm. the organization. Have different tiers of uh, decision-making, blah, blah, blah. If we don't shift mindsets, we don't necessarily realize the true benefits of the transformation we set off on in the first place.
0: Wow, that's a really powerful framework. I think it's so powerful because of how many layers it can operate within, right? So it not only applies on the individual level, but also we take it a step further. It can apply on a family level. Take it a step further, community level. Another step, um, organizational, company. um, Another step, you know, you've got national levels also. Now, this same framework can also be used to understand why we are the way we are, right? So when we think of why are... Why do certain people in certain countries, you know, we're known for different things, right? Good or bad. And when we think of something as practical as corruption, for example, there's a viewed experience that we have of the world around us. These things that we learn and associate to be a part of the norm, right? And if we're not careful, we can easily take a viewed experience something that we see happening and um, is a constant theme in our society, we can easily turn that to become the norm or just the way that we do things. I was on Twitter the other day and there was a really interesting thread that I was reading and it was just about corruption here in Kenya specifically. So for context, this gentleman had a sit down with about six or so of the wealthiest people that he knows right these are captains of industry here in Kenya and he brought to the table you know one of these really altruistic um, types of ideas around hey let's create um, employment opportunities for young Kenyans a big way to do that you know if we think of it from a capitalist standpoint you know create employment right um, what sorts of industries create the most jobs and he floated manufacturing and said hey you know you should build you know a bunch of factories you know let's produce stuff and employ young Kenyans you know he said that they laughed at him literally laughed they said that they're in the business of making money and if they wanted to lose a lot of their money that's exactly what they would do which is a really shocking thing to hear as someone you know from the outside who would have thought that this would be something they'd be super interested in Um, to solve multiple problems, create employment, make money for themselves. But ideally, what they were saying was, look, it's not that we don't want to do it because it's a bad opportunity. We don't want to do it because we have such a difficult, difficult time finding trustworthy managers and employees for these businesses. So a lot of these captains of industry, um, large-scale employers, tend to find themselves on the defensive from the beginning. What do I mean by that? I mean they are thinking of ways to theft proof their business as a matter of priority rather than thinking of innovating whatever they're thinking no. How can I safeguard this thing from being stolen from the very by the very people who work for me? That's absolutely crazy. But but is it though? We take a step back just as you've been prompting us to do akuswa and we realize that when these employees or managers etc whoever it is that's working here when they're going about their day-to-day life they interact with let's say the policeman who's i mean as far as we are concerned here in Kenya they're out to extort you right they take bribes they cut corners and basically can be sold off to the highest bidder they look at our political class where it's the exact opposite of a meritocracy, right? You've got deals being cut under the table, a lot of looting. I mean, it's, it's kleptomania. So why is it that they would then exclude themselves from that culture and say that I'm going to take the high road and actually choose to be ethical when in fact the people who have amassed the most wealth around them have taken the exact opposite path, right? So, so it's no it's no surprise that that same culture of you know a lack of integrity or um, embezzlement, corruption is able to permeate through not just from a political and social standpoint, but even in our organizations. What I'm really seeing here, Akosoa, is that mindset is like an onion right these layers to this thing it starts on the inside on a personal level you know what does Akusua think what do I think then now it goes to a family level what what was I conditioned believing in my family what did I see around me it goes into you know your school it goes into um, the area you live in your country you know and, and at the end of the day the The biggest layer at the top there is just our common humanity and a lot of the things that um, underpin all of us. But Akosua, before we write off humanity (laughs) and say that, hey, look, we've got issues and it's permeated all layers of society. There's no going back. Before we do that, you've seen companies, organizations, people turn around I'd love to understand what are some of the barriers in place that are really hindering us from t- taking on you know good habits, good um, cultural practices, et cetera, good mindsets. What are some of the things that oftentimes you find get in the way of people adopting those things?
2: What are some of my thoughts on um, mindset barriers? Okay, um I o- mean on a
0: larger. Cultural,
2: you know, the the bottom line is it always starts with the individual. You you cannot change mindset Mm. and skill without changing the lived experience of the individual. Okay. Yeah. So, this is where I believe that, I mean, our continent has never really, for most of our countries, and I can speak from the Ghanaian perspective. We won independence and then it was like, okay, so what next? You know, right. because there is a mindset that is needed to fight for independence. And there's a different mindset that needs, is needed for building a nation. The Absolutely. mindset we needed for fighting independence was abandoned. And we had our leaders, you know, the various leaders that have come, Palmin krumah Nelson Mandela, name them. They fought, you know, Julius Nyerere, Patrice Lumumba, whoever, um, um, Thomas Sankara, they fought. Okay, he didn't fight for independence, but they, he fought for his nation in a different way. But, you know, and if you look even in the, across the pond to the Americas, so you've got the Martin Luther Kings, et cetera, all fighting for independence. But once the independence quote unquote happened, The next stage was we need to build our nations. The next stage was the African-American in uh, United States needs to find his identity. The next stage was the South African, the Black South African needed to find his identity post-apartheid. And that requires a different mindset. Because first we were fighting the enemy they've gone. What's the mindset that brings us together to actually build an an identity for ourselves. And that's at least for the most part of the continent never happened. And so our default system then became to actually aspire to be like our our former colonial masters, right? And so we look to them as the epitome of what life ought to be in the process, losing our core value system of Ubuntu. I am because you are. We yes. that was our core value system. That's the African value system. Fact. It is. In fact, it should be the human value system, but at least for the African, that was our value system. While busy looking to our former colonial masters, while busy looking to the Western world, while busy looking beyond our shores, what we then saw was capitalist ideals you know, dog eat dog, the rat race. You know, yes. I mean, you just need to make the money. And what we have then taken that and internalized it differently is now being that when I was growing up, for instance, I had my my parents etc. would look down on anybody whose wealth had not been uh, acquired through legitimate means. You know, they would say it's his filthy money. And yeah. they would be associated with that person. Fast forward a few decades now. Now in Ghana, wealth, no matter how you acquired it, and I'm not here badmouthing Ghana, but I'm, I'm only speaking from my Ghanaian perspective. I can't necessarily place that badge on all of Africa, but I can say that not just Ghana, quite a few African countries.
3: Yeah, that's it's true. Going
2: through the process of thinking wealth, no matter how you acquire it, it's okay. And so with that kind of mindset, we then get leaders who are... You see, this is where people, we we get it wrong. We vote leaders into power and then we suddenly expect them to be different from the citizens from which they've been elected. (laughs) They are carrying the same... as ...that they were as citizens. The only difference... Is actually they've now been empowered to act from that poor mindset. Because that mindset that says wealth, no matter how I make it, is actually a mindset coming from self-centeredness, selfishness, and greed. So if I'm a person, a citizen, with that mindset, don't expect that when I become your leader, my mindset suddenly changes. My mindset is my mindset. What I've now been given is an opportunity to, on the basis of that mindset, act out. This is why I say your mindset is who you are. You act out and behave in the ways that that mindset is driving you to behave. So you're a exactly. greedy person and you just become a very greedy, rich person. That's it. You are a selfish, poor person. Yeah. And you just, it,
0: nothing just, has changed fundamentally. Nothing
2: has changed fundamentally. So, I, so yeah. yes. So that's the issue, we do have that issue. How do we shift mindsets? At the end of the day, you know, in the same way that I always tell Africans that when we are planning or talking about our continent and the changes we want to make, we don't have to, you don't go to the colonial master and former colonial master and say, oh, you know, I'm planning to do this, you know, and this is just going to make me this much better and equal and equal to you, blah, blah, blah. You don't oh, yeah. do that. You don't go announcing your agenda to the enemy and bringing the battle to your door. That's insanity.
0: <laughs> it's so funny that you talk about that because Yaon Sako on our episode on rethinking Pan-Africanism He actually brought up that point and said, look, we don't have to be so pompous and super obvious and boastful about the changes and revolutions that we want to take part in as Africans. That's beyond tribal lines, populism, etc. And also decision making.
2: It's like that, if you like, let's picture the slave camps. You know, we, we were not there, but let's just try and picture it. And the slaves going to the master, the slave master and saying, oh, yeah, you know, we're planning to run away and we, we will be definitely running away. We will leave you shorthanded. Blah, 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 blah. You say all this to them and you expect that they will just sit down and fold their arms and watch you people run away. That's essentially what we keep doing. Announcing what we are, our intentions, are, our goals, our vision, our strategy, etc., in advance of even executing them. And so they get nipped in the back. So, same principle. If we, the masses, go shouting at the leaders to change, they're not going to change just like that because they are enjoying their positions of greed. So, my view is that change can happen in a number of ways. It can be happening nice, collegiate, we can have nice conversations. We all think we are (laughs) not. or it can happen through some level of push. What we need sure. to do is to wake the masses up. 80% yes. of our population don't even understand why they vote people into power in the first place.
0: Beyond it's tribal not- lines, exactly. beyond that populism.
2: But even more deeply than that, a tip, a, 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 I mean, an average, Ghanian, two things. One, what is the Ghanaian identity? I think we will struggle to articulate it at any level of consistency. And number two, what does it mean to be a Ghanaian citizen? You know, um, what people, what, Ghana, what we don't realize is that the nation belongs to us, which means the assets of the nation, I am a shareholder and a stakeholder in it. It also means that after liabilities are generated, I bear part of that. I don't think the average man walking on the streets of Ghana sees himself as a shareholder in the nation called Ghana.
0: For in sure. In terms
2: of assets and in terms of liabilities. Now, if you
0: also decision making.
2: Exactly. So if you if you took yeah. those people, for instance, and you took, took them to their family context, we have something that we call the head of the family, and, yes. they, and the person oversees the assets of the family, etc. Now, as a family member, people are conscious of their stake in the family assets. So if the head of the family starts selling the assets, they know where to take recourse to. They go straight to the chief or whatever in that area to form, make a complaint, a formal complaint, because they know their stake and they understand their identity within that family. We don't have that at a national level. So we need to wake people up. So they begin to understand the essence of governance. Because when people wake up and understand the essence of governance as custodians of the wealth of the state, and then they can understand how to hold them to account. At this point in time, they're not necessarily holding any government to account. All they are doing is okay, fine. Um, this tribe party came into power. They've been here for eight years. It's now our turn. We will it's go our our turn and bring <laughs> this one in, and that will be there for another eight years. And then, and that's all we're doing. between those four and eight years, there's nothing being nothing. Held being held to account. That's why people can be this corrupt and still step down nicely. Yeah. eight-year democratic rule and go and live their merry lives and die peaceful deaths, Because the people are not awake to their identity and to their state in their nations.
0: Akoswa, from what I'm hearing, I'm now starting to understand why you've been so successful at creating organizational change. Because fundamentally, when we look at what a country is, a country is basically just a scaled up version of a corporation. And so therefore, in the same way that you'd expect in a successful organization that the employees are able to step up and say, hey, look, I can see what's happening around me. I can recognize opportunities, challenges, etc., and I'm going to own those because I recognize that I, as a part of this organization, I'm a key stakeholder, and therefore what I do here matters thus creating an intentionality and an awareness of the fact that our thoughts and actions have consequence and caring about what those consequences are to the company. So in the same way that passivity of employees has a negative effect on the outcomes and success of a company, the same applies to our countries where if things aren't working, we need to look at ourselves and ask, hey, are we being passive? And most importantly, asking ourselves, look, if we are switched off, what does us switching on look like? And what does us being active and engaged look like for us?
2: And you have nailed it so perfectly. That's why I always say um, organizations are a microcosm of nations. That's what for they sure. are. They are representatives. Families, you know, the smallest... Families unit, as well. The smallest yeah. nation unit really is a family. It's a
3: family,
0: for sure. Then
2: you get into your v- community, you get to your village, you get to your city, you get to your whatever. But that's really what the essence... So the principles don't change. The principles yes. are consistent. Whether you're doing it within an organizational context or you're doing it on a geographical context, what you're doing is not dealing with the boundaries like a brick wall. I'm not dealing with the organization's buildings. I'm dealing no. with people in them. And in right. the, the same way, we're not dealing with the nation, the boundaries of the nation called Ghana, the geographical space. We're right. dealing with the people in that geographical space and beyond. That's why I can be Ghanaian and still not be within that mm-hmm. geographical space. And the same principle applies across the continent. We're not dealing yes. with the Africans that are living on the continent and the boundaries. We're dealing with the African mindset. We're dealing with the African psyche. We're dealing with yeah. the African identity. That's what we're dealing with.
0: Akoswa, I don't know about you, but I really admire the culture that I see in places like China, Japan, where they have this very strong sense of Ubuntu. Right. I'm sure they have their own Mandarin or Japanese um, phrases for this thing. But, you know, Ubuntu basically being that togetherness and oneness and commitment to improvement and pushing forward as one people. Right. So they kind of have this like w- when I think of them, I think of like a beehive. They're just resonating and, and working in harmony and you know, there's also this huge sense of patriotism and pride in who they are. It's crazy, but it, it's a mindset. And from what I have gathered so far, it was intentionally instilled and learned. I mean, I look forward to the day when we as Africans can operate in that same kind of beehive mentality where you don't have to tell the worker bee to go and take care of the queen. You don't have to tell um, this other one to go out and pollinate. You you don't have to be babied and handheld, but there's that ingrained sense of duty, which I've seen these other cultures um, be able to instill. You know, at the end of the day, I look forward to a day when, you know, the Akuswas come back to Africa and you sit down and you really run this place like a company. I fundamentally think that actually the countries that do the best are the ones that are run like companies. So actually on that point, quick story time. The other day, my uncle traveled to Rwanda, just here, our neighboring country. And, you know, he came back and we were just chatting, asking him about how his trip was. And I asked him, hey, look, I've got lots of Rwandan friends. I hear a lot about it. Um, you know, the other campus of our, of our university, African Leadership University is, is based in Rwanda. You know, we, we hear a lot about that place. And so I asked him like really directly, straight up, no filter. Why do you think that country works so well? And you know what he told me? He said, it all boils down to the fact that Paul Kagame runs that country like a company. So he says that basically, you know, heads of departments, heads of ministries, um, leaders of the different um, counties or districts, etc., they are sat down and have to account for progress that they're making, the goals that they're setting, um, how much progress are they making at any point of time. They're given very critical feedback on things working or not working and just like any other company if you are underperforming you're out he said that these things are done very publicly and quite frankly heads roll that's what he said he said heads roll
2: Work is getting done and that's the whole point running the company running the nation as an organization is so interesting it's it's interesting and this is how i my journey really branched into this whole thing because obviously my african identity is at my core i want to see africa move from potential to reality because ever since yes. I've, been, I've been living for this half a century all i've had right. is the african potential i'm i'm sick of <laughs> potential africa <laughs> real, reality it's as simple as that you know and, yeah. Um, yeah. when people say yes he runs the country like an organization yes the country is an organization it is and so but but this and people are surprised it's almost like oh he's doing something new and different he's doing what yeah. he's been doing all along yeah. i've always argued that i find it incredible that one of the easiest to me in most of the african countries that do not hold ministers and etc to account one of the easiest jobs to be is to be a minister of some sort because essentially Absolutely. you get paid You get your bonuses coming in. You get your bonuses leaving regardless of how you perform. I mean, that must be a push. crazy. And (laughs) then, this is the incredible thing. We are expecting miracles. Simultaneously to that happening, whether you perform or you don't perform, you get rewarded. We are surprised when we find ourselves in a state of disarray with lack of performance, with nothing to show for it. I find ourselves going back and forth with our begging bowl, begging for things that we actually have, you know, importing into our country things that we can grow. Come on. And we import, I mean, some of the things that I've had during this whole COVID thing, you know, we depend on Ukraine for wheat. What's the population of Ukraine versus your population? What's the land mass? versus your landmass that you have the audacity to fold your hands and be angry because there's a war going on in ukraine but actually the priority for you is the wheat that you're not getting come on you know <laughs> um and paul Kagame is my political idol political half brother i'll put it out there he's doing, doing a
0: great job
2: a great job and people will immediately um you know sidetrack you with but he's done he's got this and I'm, I'm not listening to true sure. um propaganda i'm looking for sure. at the evidence of result i, I cynically say any if in actual fact if the west is bashing you as an african leader you must be doing something right anyway because if they're singing your praises you're clearly not doing something for your own people that's what i what i bashfully cynically say but that's not the the point of the matter is I see, I've written, um, as you said, I've written uh, three books on Mindset Revolution. The third book is actually what I would even call a handbook for developing the continent that we call Africa. Um, It's got got 52 rules in there of engagement. And um, I would say that Pokagame is actually, and I didn't write this book having studied Rwanda. I wrote this book from my heart down And then on reflection, looking at him, see that he's identified a number of these rules. And if you even listen to him, he talks about mindsets all the time. He basically says, if we don't have a problem, we have a mindset issue. And that's the issue. I started that book of saying Africa doesn't have an infrastructure problem, a leadership problem, a resource problem, blah, blah. All the things that we perceive are the problems. Actually, are the symptoms of a bigger problem, and the Absolutely. bigger problem is the mindset, which is driving us to act and behave in ways that are contrary to what our potential should be. You know, uh, uh, and so yes, um, the nation, yeah. def- the organization is definitely a microcosm of mm-hmm. a nation, and the principles apply across board. The they world. do.
0: You know, Akoswa, just on the same topic, there's something that I found really interesting about the individual part of this microcosm of um, mindset and um, and identity, which is that I'm least happy when the ideal version of who I know I can be and should be is not aligning with the reality of where I am, you know, at that specific moment of time. And I think that that's something that Africa and Africans are facing where, just like you said, you know, we're we're really tired of hearing this thing about, oh, Africa's potential, this, this, that. There's a fundamental disconnect between the Wakanda, quote-unquote, ideal that we have of who we need to be versus um, what we see all around us. I'll give you an example. So I was going home from church the other day and I happened to pass by a market. It's, you know, one of the largest markets here in the city. Fresh fruits, vegetables, really lovely place to get a good bargain on your monthly groceries. Right. So I'm passing this place and it's right along a newly constructed highway. So, you know, you'd think, wow, great, you know, really nice infrastructure going on. Nairobi is really well developed, but here's this marketplace that when you look around, you see that they have a waste management problem. There are no bins for these um, hawkers and, you know, we call them mamambogas, you know, the People who are basically selling produce, right? There's no place for them to dispose their waste. This is, mind you, a market. So fresh fruits, vegetables. Meaning, um, when they're not so fresh anymore, it rots, right? So these piles of like rotting mangoes, tomatoes, this that. It it smells terrible, right? Partially, some other places there, you know, um, people, you know, urinating. What it just smells so weird and 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 off. And I was just like, this is a problem that could have easily been fixed. It's a system that needs to be put in place. Um, but when you look at that in contrast to the, you know, brand new highway that's just been constructed nearby, you know, there's these, that weird dichotomy um, of identity, which quite frankly was just frustrating, right? I actually was upset. These are simple things that could be put in place, but but they're not. And and it, it was just deeply uncomfortable, It just made me very uncomfortable. And here's the thing. I'm not the only African who has looked around them and said, this is not it. A lot of us are trying to move. A lot of us are saying, hey, we're done with this. We want a better life somewhere else. And we basically have an exodus going on where some of our best and brightest are leaving.
2: For someone like me, I'm sure they'll say, oh, yeah, you've gone away and had your 30 (laughs) years things, and now you're saying what? Um, yeah. And 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 that's a fair enough comment. But I guess what I would say is, what I've come yeah. here is to grow and learn and be able to also come and share, having right. both of us own. But now, yeah. I mean, what you say is so interesting. You know, the whole issue of sanitation. I mean, I think somebody asked me if you were president, what would you prioritize, and I said that there are two things I will prioritize straight away. Um, one is sanitation, and two is food security. And then beyond that, but like not getting up with, oh, we built these roads, we built hospitals. Right. For me, prioritizing hospital is saying that you're actually ideally expecting people to get sick before you cure them. I want to get people healthy in advance of getting sick. And hence, I will prioritize sanitation, and yeah. hence, I will prioritize food security. But coming to the whole point of sanitation, that's why I went through that head Principle, you yes. know, because there are soft side and there's the, the culture side. Mm. I know of a city in a country where many um, public latrines, where public toilet systems were erected, but the dwellers in that city refused to use it and continued to use the sea as their ways of um, eliminating, getting rid of their digestive waste. Um, because as far as they, they felt, that was more hygienic and that is the way they've always done it. And that's the way the gods expect them to do it and blah, 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 blah. So it's one thing even describing the scene that you described, I can assure you if the beings were just came, erected there, you will find the beings overflowing because we don't tr- solve problems from an ecosystem perspective. Putting the bins there is not just what it is. It has to be a whole chain of who's responsible for collecting the bins and where do they dispose of them beyond that point and so on and so forth and so forth. Now,
0: in a system-
2: Exactly, in addition to that, there has to be ways of enforcing a shift in behavior. So I have a city in, um, there's a a, a city in um, a town in Ghana. Um, it's called Asinkushia, it's known as the cleanest um, town in Ghana. And the chief, they prioritized uh, sanitation. And what I understand anecdotally, when I go back home later this year, I will actually go and visit them, because that's a prototype for what I would want to see rolled out across the country. But what I understand anecdotally, and I hope it is true, and if it isn't, I would encourage him to do it, is that one, apart from laying out the bins and everything in the, the town so that you can barely walk 200 yards without finding somewhere to dispose of your waste sensibly? he has empowered each citizen, each member of that community to feel proud of their clean environment enough to hold you account. So if a five-year-old mm. sees you dropping littering, links, Five year old is empowered to pick up your letter or to point mm. on you and say, sir, mm. this is a, there is a bin over there. Pick your letter and put it in the bin. And these are the sort of systemic changes that we need to implement. You know, you need people to own the change. If he had just come and put bins in the town, their rubbish would be overflowing. People would put in things that they are not supposed to put in. People would be pouring oil and all kinds of things. No. So there has to be a way in which you enter the psyche of people as part of the chain. Otherwise, whatever physical infrastructure is put out there, I will guarantee you will be abused because there hasn't been an internalization of the chain. The internalization for that city is that We are the cleanest city in Ghana and we want to keep it that way. The citizens are proud. Their experience is that people respect their place for being the cleanest city in Ghana. That's the sort of citizen pride, citizen identity, that is mostly lacking on our continent because we don't galvanize around projects. We don't galvanize around initiatives. We don't let people take ownership and internalize the benefits for themselves. All we're doing is, oh, we'll come and repair this road for you. And we will come and do this for you. And, and that is just fueling and continuing to grow and lend helplessness and a dependency right. mindset. And that's the issue. That's the, it is that behavior that is driving openification. It, it is. is. That land helplessness. You know, let me just give you another story. Um,
3: yeah.
2: We, we know every rainy season in, in Ghana, it, the rainy season will come. They, they will have the floods because they, the gutters are choked with rubbish and, and so on and so forth. Year in year, this is not new. This has been happening ever since I've been alive that I can actually consciously remember. Now, I remember about maybe four years ago. Again, the rains came, the floods came, the rubbish that had been stuffed into the gutters came out onto the roads, etc. And there was a news um, agency or a news story, basically newscaster going around, a you know, media outlet going around and interviewing people who, after the rains had dried away, were pushing back the rubbish Into where? Guess what? The gutters.
3: Oh man!
2: You know, I mean that—that is—that is is in their sense, in their mindset, they Mm. were cleaning the streets,
0: right? Basically, sweeping it under the rug. (laughs)
2: Exactly, cleaning the streets (laughs) and pushing the rubbish right back into where it created the floods in the first place. Now that's Mm. the height of insanity. But that's that's a land helplessness. That's the way in which we are not thinking anymore. There's no critical thinking happening. And I I was actually quite irritated by the media outlet as well, because all they seem to. They're just covering it. Covering it, exactly. Not taking it as a moment of education. And that is Mm. where I believe the, the issue is. So mm. fine, you found them doing what you perceive is actually inappropriate. But there's no point yeah. telling the whole world about something that is inappropriate if we're not going to use it as a teachable moment so that because the people that were pushing the rubbish into the, uh, into the gutters, were not doing it with a yeah. sense of malice and saying, I want the floods to come again. In their minds, they were solving a problem as in they were, they were. to speak.
0: As best they knew how to.
2: As yes, best they knew how to. So educate them, you know, and this mindset shift is got, is all about education in the broadest sense. Because the mm-hmm. way we program people is through information and knowledge. Information yes. becomes lived experience, becomes knowledge to you. Information yes. that's observed in somebody being lived out, or which you live yourself, becomes lived experience and it becomes knowledge. We are very, very good at assimilating information. We are so poor at generating knowledge. And that's the issue.
0: Akosua, what's really interesting here is that I'm starting to see a pattern in the frameworks and the approaches that you are suggesting we go about having a revolution of our mindsets, right? It's very similar to something that I had learned at a program that I had done. I had studied this course and it's called Transformational Leadership. It was run by a really interesting gentleman called Ford Taylor who did work pretty similar to yours um, based in the USA. And one of the early frameworks that we learned was basically an understanding for why we do what we do. And it was called the TFA framework, right? So that stands for Thoughts, Feelings, and Actions. And that basically the way that, the reason why we act the way we do is because things start off as a thought which is often in reaction to you know certain stimulus which is around us so something happens and you have a thought about it second layer to that is that you feel something in relation to that thought so something happened you feel a certain way about it and then you take a specific action and if we think of this whole issue of sanitation for example and the way that this TFA model can be used to map out how to actually turn this into a system is that, you know, for example, let's say you're in an area similar to where I was that time and you look around you and the first thought that you get as a result of that stimulus, you can't control stimulus, but um, you have a certain thought about it and you're like, hey, this is dirty, right? That's the first thought that comes to mind. Your next feeling after that should be hmm I don't feel proud per se about this place being dirty and the action therefore which would be commendable would be to maybe clean it up right and I think that's what's being used in Rwanda so when someone looks around and they think hey this place is really clean the feeling that they get is one of pride And the action is that they will continue participating in some of the, you know, programs and, um, you know, cleanup rituals that they have going on. Right. So there's this continuous positive feedback loop that turns from a system that was put in place to invoke those feelings and um, those actions to it now turning into actual culture that's embedded in the fabric of their society but fundamentally the reason why it worked and the reason why it stuck is because there's a system that basically reinforces this thinking these um, these programs etc that happen whereas in other cases where we have you know what you refer to as learned helplessness those processes are just not in place and so we default back to the old way that we did things trash will always be thrown out Um, we wouldn't have anywhere to put it. The problem just keeps perpetuating itself.
2: We shift the problem from one place to the other. And this is what we are doing. I mean, in some respects, we're dumping things in the sea and all that kind of stuff because we're not thinking on a systems basis. And again, you know, I I, 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 I applaud you. That's truly exactly the point. Um, It's connecting you know, the, the whole feeling thing that you're talking about, that's the internalization process. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a feedback loop. You know, yes. so I would say that you think the thought is an external, uh, potentially maybe an external trigger. In truth, external yeah. triggers only resonate with you when yes. at, a con- at, at an unconscious or subconscious level. You have a certain belief system that either True. aligns or is in contradiction to that external stimulus. Exactly. There's so many things bombarding you, but you sift through what draws your attention. And the thing yeah. is sifting through that is really at your core, what you believe and what you value. Either that thing is validating it or it's invalidating it. It's either way, True. it's triggering you in some respect. If it's True. invalidating it, fine and it's, a, it's something that a, a core belief that you have held that works for you and the results well you may yeah. just start wrestling and questioning it but if it's yeah. invalidating it and it's actually prompting you to look at the externals and think i need to change the external to align with my core belief because i know my core belief is right yes So my core yes. belief is that african people we are not dirty people and we i am put on record here we're in our rural areas, when you go to our rural areas, the first thing they do when they wake up is to start sweeping their compound. they yeah. put their chewing sticks in their mouth or whatever it is, they are sweeping their compound. They will do all the tidying, go to the farm, whatever, before they even eat. So the yes. hygiene is important to us. It it's when you come to our city centres, our urban yeah. centres, where there doesn't seem to be any pride in the environment and ownership mm. for the environment that's mm. when open education becomes a whole huge issue you know because yeah. it becomes no man's land and people are doing whatever they want to do because we are essentially operating from a very self-centered perspective which means i need to do yeah. myself i can't find a public whatever i'll do my business wherever and go yeah. um, so, so the key thing that you're saying here is really that we need to connect with people in a feeling way, then we need yes. to understand that whatever, if any government that goes around changing everything, even if the government had all the money in the world, Pokagami has money, the, the Rwanda has enough uh, fi- finances in its office, He could deploy the resources, but he's letting the citizens take ownership. Is letting the citizens take pride. That is why he has clean up campaigns, not because he can't pay road sweepers to sweep it. But if you (laughs) keep doing that, even at home, if you've got a household that is doing everything for the kids, the kids become lazy. They sit there, they they drink in their cup, they put it there because (laughs) so-so-and-so will come and clean it. And that yep. is exactly the same thing that we are deploying at national and international and whatever level. Yeah. The mm-hmm. difference is let the citizens take ownership. Let mm-hmm. them take buy-in. That's what I tell organizations. They're buy in. They're, they're buy-in. buy it's, buying. It's okay mm-hmm. for the chief executive to have this fantastic vision. He's a CEO of 5,000 people. He's a 5,000 people that are going to help to deliver that vision. Whether are yeah. The vision. He's the most charismatic person, or whatever. Is not going to make the vision come to life if the five people he's leading do not buy into that vision, do not feel a sense of pride. That's yeah. why ownership. Have, exactly. That's why organizations have brands. You know. So you're working, and then if you say you have, you mention a particular organization's name, you feel proud to say that <laughs> associated with that organization's brand. That's
3: yeah. the
2: Same principle. If you want the citizens of Ghana to feel proud, to have a stake, to let the vision of Ghana be, happen, to let the vision of um, Africa happen, they need to have a stake in the deployment and development. It's not a down-to scenario. It's a collaborative we-do-together scenario. That's Absolutely. why I started off by saying citizens must understand they are stakeholders, owners of the assets, and share in the liabilities of the nation. And then once they come from that stake, they will fight to protect those assets. They will fight to grow those assets. They will to minimize those liabilities and they will hold those in leadership to account where they deviate from these ambitions, where the leader is eroding our assets, they will scream. Where they are putting on liabilities that they don't need, they will scream. But the, for as long as you know, we for years, decades, we focus on the leadership. I think it's time to actually. For I mean, we need to focus on both, but I yeah. think it's time to focus on the lead. Yes, those yeah. that are being led, because guess what? Out of that crop of the lead, will come the right type of leadership. At the moment, exactly. We're just voting the led who have those mindsets that are not helpful to the nation. We're just voting them into leadership positions. Yeah, and nothing they are changes. That same mindset and nothing changes. Yes. We need to focus on the led.
0: Akoswa, we're reaching the tail end of our conversation. And let me just say, off the bat, this has been an absolute masterclass. I hope everyone that's listening who just has aspirations to build something, either your own personal career, a family, a business, a nation, it all starts with you. The mindset that you have internally, it just not only affects other people, but can be used as a model to basically create change and the world that you envision you know i think it was it michael jackson maybe i'm misquoting people (laughs) but someone said uh, that we just have to be the change we want to see in the world and Akosua has really given us an actual psychology and um, mindset view as to why that phrase is so important thank you so much Akosua. now there's something really fun that we like to do towards the tail end of our conversations. And that is called the elevator segment. So picture this. We've just had an amazing conversation here in the boardroom and it's time to go, unfortunately. As you're walking towards the elevator, you get in, you're about to go down. You know, you've got to rush off to your next meeting. One of our eager interns basically stops you, puts his hand through the door, hops in with you and has a couple of quick fire questions to ask you just in time for you to get to your next meeting or at least to get to the lobby downstairs are you ready to step into the elevator akoswa
2: i'm ready well as ready as can be
0: (laughs) so the first question is what's one book that you've read that significantly changed your perspective on life or business
2: oh um well Gosh, it's so many books. But I think um, two, um, one book that I will talk about is The Outliers.
0: Yes, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Fantastic book.
2: And um, that, that was the beginning, I think, of um, knowing that the investment is, is, is good. Investing in myself, is I, I can bet on myself and win. Um, and I think that was actually helpful in driving me to decide, Now nah, I can work for myself. I don't need to be part of a McKinsey's brand or um, uh, any other Big Four consultancy brand to deliver. I'm betting on Akushia and Akushia can deliver. So long as she puts in the, mind, the, the investment to become the outlier that she needs to be. So that, 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 that is one of the key books that, yeah, definitely.
0: There you have it, guys. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Go get yourself a copy. Of okay, course, so our second question is, what's next? You have mentioned that you travel a lot. We know that you are back and forth between the UK, Ghana, um, other parts of the world. And, you know, quite frankly, from this conversation, I'm really convinced that if you are to Run for some sort of office somewhere, you know, back in Ghana. I'd I'd move back and try and be a citizen. <laughs> Possibly try and work for you. Uh, I think you know possibilities are really endless, and I'm I'm curious to know what's what's next for Akosua. Akosua, well, I
2: mean, my my next steps are uh, my mission for the second half of my life. So I've just the first half century of my life I'm definitely gonna live congratulations
0: to <laughs> yes
2: so, so I've got I'm definitely gonna live to a hundred for the second half of my life it's really I have one simple mission mindset revolution on the African continent that's my mission and that's to be achieved through a number of routes through um, identifying and collaborating and working with People I perceive as mindset revolution champions. I call them master champions. People who have a similar message to what I have. I've just, I've, caveat, I've called it and branded in mindset revolution, but they come from yes. similar places. And I have many, many, many of those. I mean, um, Yao is a master champion. Um, right, and absolutely. So working with people like that in their spheres of control, Because what I'm expecting to have is very many light bulb moments, I mean, going on in different spheres of control until we get the global light, you know, the real continental light. So definitely playing a leading role in that. In the immediate and short term, um, well, expanding my consultancy footprint on uh, and the mindset coaching footprint on the continent. So in terms of real, I've not in the past um, over pursued um, business on the continent from a change management perspective. I absolutely believe that and one other, one route into the country in changing behaviors is actually changing behaviors through the organizations. It's It's, it's, it's another, it's one route. The other thing is another, what I, I, I would probably call a master campaign um, or roadshow or whatever, but literally going to the grassroots at their level to talk to them. And when I say level, I'm not talking about material level. I'm talking about within their comfort, comfort zone, within their space. So go to people where they are, not invite people into your space and hear them and share with them and share my experiences, learn from their experiences, have a heart-to-heart. That's where I want to reach people, Um, as well as obviously targeting our youth, our growing youth. I mean, this is the the great thing about Africa. We have a growing youth population. Now, that can be an asset, but it can also be a liability if we don't manage it. Effectively. Because timbre. the growing youth of despair, people or people in despair, um, is obviously not going to help us in any way, shape, or form. So yes. I want the opportunity to share the mindset revolution, educational concepts, tools, whatever, through our various institutions. You know, from the
3: yes,
2: um, primary, secondary, tertiary, whatever. I'm writing books for children at the moment. Um, oh wow! I'm hoping to be able to launch a, incredible. Character, a character before the end of the year that will start people children as young as two three years being yes. able to identify that they have the power internally to yes ever and whoever they want to be so i don't want them to have a superhero outside that they are looking up to i want them to see the superhero inside themselves and to start wow. a way of pride in their identity as africans and to start inculcating the new ways of thinking that i'm hoping the continent will pick up because that's the way you learn you let uh, that's the way that's one of the channels through which our core beliefs are built through reading so if we 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 keep complaining about, oh, that they're not reading too much African literature, blah, blah, blah. But in truth, yeah. you can't find a lot of, there's some good stuff out there, but that's not enough. We need not more to just write and write, but write from the right perspective. Don't mm. write to reinforce the negative in the country, write to actually reinforce the mindset that we need as critical thinking citizens who will build the nation and who will build the continent called Africa. So that's really where my, my heart is, to change the mindsets through practical initiatives. Because you can't change yeah. mindset in a vacuum. And the no, education. You, no, exactly. You, but even when you educate people, you know, and I, I think broader sense of education must always come with lived experience. This is a problem sometimes we have in Africa. And I wouldn't yes. worry about the time. Don't worry, I've, I've made arrangements for, so don't worry, I will carry okay.
3: Okay, sure, sure.
2: So that we get the value out of the, the 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 session, um, what we tend to do a lot in Africa within our former educational system is actually teach theory and no practice.
3: Mm.
2: So people, I mean, I remember there was an incident where a group of people that had won the highest marks in our engineering context or whatever uh, contest in, in in Ghana went to the national program, the national contest and failed miserably because they had never actually seen and touched any of the things that they were being asked to practically use to demonstrate that knowledge Mm. that theoretically they had. It's the same principle with mindset revolution. I can sit you here and bash you in the head with belief systems, belief systems, belief systems. It's not gonna make a blind bit of difference until your experience changes because once your experience changes it either reinforces the the, uh, beliefs that you had inside you or it shifts that belief experience lived experience is a critical element to mindset shifts and mindset revolutions so my desire is to provide those lived experiences through various initiatives community-based initiatives schools-based initiatives organizational corporate world whatever that's my ambition that's my vision that's my goal that's my raison d'être
0: wow what a noble and most importantly attainable vision that you have there for yourself um in the immediate and longer term definitely attainable and we want to wish you all the best with that and i think fundamentally if we here in the boardroom and our listeners Take the advice that you've just given us, you know, and really start from within and develop into the people that we need to become in order to be the ideal participants and builders of nations and communities and companies we can be proud of. Nothing is beyond our reach. Nothing.
2: There's one thing I wanted to actually say. There's a friend. Just yes, go me, ahead. Very, very quickly. And I mean, you can rearrange this and put in a different segment. That's fine.
0: Yeah, so, sure.
2: To a friend of mine, she's called Le- Lefepu. And um, I was speaking to her on Thursday evening. And she basically said, you know what? The problem is that we, we we need to, in my mind, we need to start thinking of Africa as a country, not a continent. And I understood where she was coming from. Um, mm. because we are so obsessed with the geographical boundaries that have been set. And in any, in any case, And, after, and the were set by us. Current. Exactly. <laughs> we're so obsessed with those geographical boundaries. It's actually becoming counter or uh, unconstructive to think properly together. So we will throw the African thing in uh, identity in there. But we'll immediately start finding boundaries in terms of trade amongst ourselves and all kinds of stuff. But if we're yeah. thinking ourselves of a country and take away the, you know, those boundaries, even if physically they are there from a mental perspective, if we're able to get rid of those boundaries, we can now start thinking of a holistic vision for Africa, because some of the things that we keep throwing or we allow people to throw to us as barriers you know they say oh you have too many languages on the continent you can't trade together yeah
0: too many currencies
2: okay yeah. but um the european union zone has multiple languages there as well true There's italian there's spanish there's french there's whatever true. There is. so if yeah. they come together and create a new, an economic zone that works we should be able to come together, regardless of the number of languages, and create
3: absolutely
2: that works. So, yes, as Letepu said, we definitely need to start at a thought level to think yes, of Africa, not as a continent with multiple countries, 54 countries, and all kinds of sovereignties and boundaries, True. but as a country that can work together, that has a common brand, a common vision, Common and their identity understands its internal problems, which are actually opportunities disguised are. as problems. Uh, because every problem you solve is actually an opportunity. You know, you see a problem, you see the opportunity, you solve it, you get the reward. For
3: sure, for sure.
2: So yes, that's what the people said. That I thought I should put that word out there because I think it's important we start thinking in those terms. Get rid of the boundaries.
3: Too many then- silos.
2: Too many silos. Too many too many
0: you know okay so when we look at that africa problem and um you know us having different nationalities all these um, borders and identities that we've all taken on and are in many cases bent on excluding others from that's creating these silos right these um spaces of isolation that is just so contrary to our fundamental inclination towards this concept of Ubuntu, right? Um, this togetherness. I think we just need to drop all of that, get together, uh, put set our differences aside and really just focus on building. Because from an organizational standpoint, when you've got different people in these silos building in separation, in isolation, when it's time to put the finished product together, it, you, you, you basically can't. There was no communication, there was no um, collaboration. It just doesn't work like that. We need to go back to our roots of Ubuntu and say, I am successful because my neighbor is successful. I am happy because, you know, people of this other nation are at peace and they're experiencing prosperity, etc. We really need to go back to those roots. You know, I, I... Back to what I was saying earlier, I really think Africa's facing this dichotomy of identity where on one hand we have these relatively new um, Western capitalist type of ideals of, um, you know, every man for himself. Um, build, build, build at any cost. So, you know, certain values that we used to have about protecting our environment, um, living sustainably, um, living in communal settings, sharing, being open about those things. Uh, You know, our inherent Africanness is really at war with this new identity that's kind of being, being imposed on us. But you know all is not lost when we look at what's happening today, a really important change is taking place, and it's happening on our music scene, for example, music arts, et cetera, where we as collective Africans are starting to take pride in each other's work, right so Kenyans are listening to ama piano, um you know, which is southern African you know this mix of native sounds. Um, we've got Afrobeats from West Africa that's being appreciated in different places. Um, and, you know, we're taking our collective sound and exporting it as one and taking pride in it as one. So I think I think if we look closely, we are taking those steps here and there. And we need to give ourselves credit for where we are attempting to break through these silos and collaborate. Because it brings me joy when one person is able to say i might not understand this language that this music is in but where i'm from my people recognize a beat i'll dance to this you know um, we're really taking on each other's cultures and now we're exporting as we speak actually there's a festival happening in portugal it's called afro nation and you know it's bringing together africa's largest artists and basically putting them on the global stage, quote-unquote, f- figuratively and um, uh, quite literally. And, you know, there's a celebration of who we are as Africans and it's it's taking place. We need to give credit where it's due and really advocate for our oneness because we are one.
2: And that's so, it. And the thing is, yeah. we've never, as much as, from a spiritual essence perspective, we are still one. Yeah. We are and, and, and that is why the dysfunction is so painful to observe. And sometimes right. you kind of feel like I need to just, I wish I could just bash our heads together and say, wake up, yeah. guys. You know what? <laughs> if you come together, if somebody is fighting your coming together so desperately, That should Imagine. Tell you that, that should tell you the power that is inherent in you coming together.
3: Precisely.
2: And that is, the, that is where we need a mindset shift. You know, even in a family of four or five children, you won't yeah. get along all the time. So you, That's true. You may true. be sworn enemies at some point in time. That's this true. where Africa gets it wrong. We can be sworn enemies and fight amongst ourselves for our little, little of wars and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Mm. When we come to the global stage, we put on the family front. Yes. That says, I stand here for Africa. And, it, yes. and, and that no doesn't necessarily what. mean you like, we all like each other. We don't have Exactly. Each other. But That's we true. To respect and love each other. Love is not the emotional feeling, love is a spiritual
3: yeah.
2: assertion, it's a spiritual decision. And that's where we need to go. Get back to our spiritual essence. And I'm not talking religious identity, I'm talking spiritual, your core. Because at the core of you, Sean is the spirit that lives in Sean. That's the real Sean. It's not Sean that is um, today sitting in front of me because maybe what, give him 10 years, he may have gray hair. So that does mean Sean has changed. Oh no. No. (laughs) Pray not. Pray not. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, does that mean Sean has changed? No. No. The call, the real Sean, is the spiritual essence. And that is mm. where we are unhappy because we are not doing That's what why... our spiritual as spirit naturally wants to do, to be together, yes. to recognize that I am because
0: we are. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, none other than Akoso Obami. In the boardroom. Guys, am I the one who feels like this conversation has given me an epic toolkit to understanding not just the world around me, but myself and specifically how I can change myself in order to change the world around me. I mean, that's just a powerful concept. I really enjoyed that uh, microcosm type of onion layer approach to how changing our mindset on an individual level um, can translate to a family level, which translates to um, community. Uh, it can translate to corporate, nationwide, globally. I love that because at the end of the day, what you're telling us is that we as individuals in changing our minds can change the world. I just think that's a, that's a powerful message, Akoswa. And anyone mm-hmm. who's listening needs to take that to heart you can do it so so i really want to thank you because i'm leaving this conversation with a greater sense of intentionality because i now recognize that i have a part to play in the family that i'm a part of in the organizations that i'm a part of in the country and continent and you know greater humanity that i serve because if i'm passive i'm giving the people around me and the causes that we stand for reasons to also be passive. So thank you again for stepping into the boardroom. And I will tell you for a fact, this has been the longest elevator segment we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. We like to say that our offices are at the top of the Burj Khalifa tallest building in the world. Cause it takes a while to get down. So on behalf of the boardroom banter community at large and Myself, Sean Karanja, I want to give you a big, big congratulations for all the work that you have put in so far, for the success of your book, Mindset Revolution, and all the work that you're doing in management consulting for transformative change in organizations. I hope you've enjoyed your time in the boardroom.
2: I absolutely had a great time. And I thank you because in summarizing what you're taking away, I know now that I have another master champion on board. So thank
0: you. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to the Boardroom Banter Podcast today. I hope you've learned something. I hope you're encouraged. And I wish you all the best with your present and future endeavors. I've been your host, Sean Karanja. And we had Akoso Bame in the boardroom. We are all wishing you guys all the best. Thank you for tuning in and see you on the flip side.